What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Write Who You Know. I'm Matt Hausfetter, and this is the podcast where I interview my friends, colleagues, and wannabe friends that are screenwriters, and we talk about all things writing, the ups, the downs, the highs, the lows, even though that means the same thing with different words. Uh, today on the podcast, we have an incredible guest. He is an awesome writer, an even better dude. I met him, I don't know, 12 years ago when I was just a lowly showrunner's assistant on the ABC uh, soap drama Revenge, Ted Sullivan. Ted uh, is so awesome and so funny and so smart. He is currently the number two and the co-executive producer of CW's hit global juggernaut Riverdale. He's written on other shows like Law & Order, Star Trek, Revenge, Rizzolian Isles, and Supergirl. We're going to get into all of that uh, in Ted's career, and we talk about taking drugs, we talk about books, we talk about music, we talk about family. Uh, it's a great podcast. It can get a little emotional at times, so strap in, uh, turn up those headphones or that car stereo, enjoy yourself, and enjoy another episode of Write Who You Know. Pass. Nope. It's just a really hard time right now. The industry's contracting. Come back to us and give some bigger attachments. Tell them right what you know. No, tell them right who you know. But yeah, so the Agassi book is just like, it's the best book I ever read. And I immediately was like, wait, so you're saying it's better than Catch 22? I never read Catch 22. What the fuck is the matter with you? <laughs> I don't know. I just... You've, wait, you're saying it's better than Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas? I think so. Look, I like Fear and Loathing, and I like Hunter Thompson, but like Fear and Loathing's pretty much the funniest book that's ever been written. It's it's wonderful. You're saying it's better than The Invisible Man. Never read that. Good lord, man! <laughs> you are a writer, aren't I, you? Yes, yes, yes. But like, I'm making my way. I can Brothers Karamazov. No, no. But I consider. Yeah, you're like. Should, should we just call it? <laughs> Do you need to go? This is everything wrong with young people. Today. But I've, I'm, I'm, I, I consider myself like the only person I know that reads, like actually. But I haven't read those. I haven't read. I'm not sure. <laughs> Sports autobiographies. No, I know. Considering I know that we should be considering as a high high art. But who knows? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm look. Yeah. I haven't read it. By the way, how is your? Are you are you too loud in your headphones? No, are you I, okay? I, I'm. I, I wish I was louder, actually. Because no, be no, no, I don't want to be louder. Okay. I don't want to be. Louder. Okay, I, it was. I was going to make a very piss poor joke about how I can only listen to myself. <clears throat> I don't want to hear you. That's okay. You can. Um, you can... I don't know. I we, listen. Let's not yes and that bit. There's no bit. No, no, no. We this will be very colloquial. Um, I, I, I wanted what I was going to tell you downstairs is that you love me. Yes, that that definitely love you. Um, but for the first time I ever did like Molly, and it was a very small amount. This is going into the podcast, yeah. Yeah, I don't care. I, mean, like, <laughs> I just like starred, and then it's. I, I just I was hoping the story didn't end with the Molly you gave me, Ted. Because <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no. I can't. Remember. Who knows? Maybe I did. Maybe I didn't. I don't know. I bummed a lot of cigarettes off of you. That's okay. Yeah. That's okay. Um, I do Molly, and then go see Bon Iver. And have a fucking meltdown. <laughs> like, like everybody is so calm and serene, and this is beautiful. I have a panic attack. Fantastic. And I turn to the two boys I'm with, and I'm like, I gotta go. Yeah. And they're like, No, 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 it's gonna be fine. We're gonna go to the Neon Carnival. I was like, No, no. we're going now. And uh, I left, 
and took a Xanax, and that was really the last time I experimented with Molly. So you're the first person in history that had a bad trip on Molly. Yes. Wow. I think it's just... You should write a book about that. <laughs> that that would be the greatest book ever. It would certainly be science fiction, because it's called ecstasy, you know? Like, like it causes you to feel ecstasy. Again, you need someone like me around to go like, no, 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 no. Just, just look at me. Just look at me. I got you. We're fine. In about three minutes, you're going to feel great. And everything, what you're feeling right now is your heart is racing. And the heart and your body is reacting as if you are having a panic attack. What it is, is it's just all the endorphins running through your body. And it's everything making you feel good. And then if you just calm down and you say, wait a second, I'm not going to die. Everything's going to be great. Then you're suddenly dancing off the walls. I, I recently started microdosing mushrooms. Yes. In a big way. I do that too. I love it. Yeah. It's great. I, I have always been like, like, I don't know if I can do mushrooms. I'll also have a fucking panic attack. But um, my barber randomly last Christmas, he's like, do you have any screeners? And I was like, yeah, I got them all. What the fuck do you want? He's like, I need, I would like to watch licorice pizza with my wife. I'll give you a, a mushroom chocolate bar. I said, okay. Oh. Okay. And he did. And it's great. Yes. And so then there, there's this company called Lit. I, I think they've, I don't know if they've I've heard it. of them. Yeah. I reach out to them on Instagram and I'm like, hey, my name's Matt. I created this show, Fairfax. We're going to have a wrap party and I would love to give this to the cast. They sent me a box, maybe worth $400 worth of mushroom chocolates. Like, oh. dude, dude. And the smartest thing is it, it came from a, a shell company. Like, right. Because I was like, it has to. Yeah, yeah. I was like, how the fuck are you going to mail this to me? And one day I'll never forget, I come home and I go, Kelsey, did you order something from fucking. And I opened it, and I was like, oh, oh my <laughs> God. Uh, and my dad, you know, my dad, who is like, I've done acid and peyote and mescaline with the who, and blah, 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 um, you know, and like used to work at ABC Records and do tons of blow. Uh, he's been begging me for years for mushrooms. So I'm like, nope, never, ever. But for Father's Day, I gave him like a... And he and his girlfriend went to like, I was like, so what did you do, dad? He's like, oh, we went to dinner at Porta Villa in Beverly Hills. I was like, you took fucking mushrooms. Sure. Sure. Why not? See, that's the thing that most people don't understand is that mushrooms are great for virtually every occasion. You can be sad. You can be happy. You can be curious. You can go to a dinner and decide, like, I don't want to eat on mushrooms. But sometimes if someone says, hey, just try this little, no, that, uh, oh, this drink, that, that's terrific. I mean, I don't want a steak. <laughs> the other the one thing i never want to do on mushrooms is have sex it's yeah, too I, weird do you ever see the movie the trip with peter fonda no they have the best portrayal of sex on mushrooms ever in that movie it's incredibly upsetting oh no because it's just too you're 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 kind of outside of your body and things just you you notice things like oh that's a that's a forearm that's there's blood in there and there's veins and muscle and how does that work and you're just like oh i'm supposed to be like you know coke you're i, I wish I, I hate coke i hate coke i hate I, it i wish i, I, I never <laughs> i i know and i wish i never did it like every bad decision i've ever made has been fueled by cocaine like the worst decisions i've ever made i've, I've hurt people on it i've hurt myself i've made horrible 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 choices uh, things that I wish that I will, things that will I will revisit as I'm dying, as my life essence is breathing out of my body. I'll be like, remember that horrible thing you did on cocaine? Yes, I do. Oh no, I'm dead. 
I puked so many times on myself because I like it would numb my throat to the point where I'd be like, oh. <laughs> like it, yeah. dude. I yeah, it's, it's my least favorite drug ever, and yeah. like my friends, I agree, love with it, and I, I'm like, what? What do you love about it? Like what you what do you like not being able to go to bed and f- fucking like staying up all night yeah. and wishing you never did this in the first place yeah, or come down like your your heart is about to burst through your neck no <laughs> like it's horrible it's horrible and the conversations you have on it are awful awful like yeah. you think that they're great yeah no it's the like idea- putting someone in cocaine jail yeah. it was an expression I heard and I thought that was wonderful it's perfect that's why I like mind expanding I like I feel like. Alcohol, I wish I could just give up alcohol, but I do enjoy, like, you made me a great cocktail. I'm like, that's a great cocktail. What I hate is getting just fucking blotto. Yeah. And I have I come from this long line of of alcoholics and, and drug addicts, and, and, and it's hard sometimes for me to cut off. Like, my lady friend has said, like, one time <laughs> I drank too much with us out you know, since we've been dating. And the next day she was like, yeah, that was really not fun <laughs> for me. Uh, it'd be great if you never did that again. I was like, heard and received. Because, mm-hmm. like, otherwise I'll just be like, Rah. I In my family, they call it the gift. It's not the gift. It's alcoholism. <laughs> it's like, you can keep drinking and keep going. No, that's called blackout and you just keep going. Like, that's not a gift. That is a curse. And that is part of what happens to me. And so people think, like, well, he seems to be moving and talking, but I have literally, I, I'm storing no information, just completely emptying my RAM every 10 seconds. Pot is, yeah, pot is the only thing that is like, I'm sure, you know, there was like a new study that came out that like, oh, it's just as bad for you as cigarettes and blah, 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 blah. That's why I don't smoke. I know, you're very smart, but I look, I, I've recently started, in the past year or so, like experimenting with gummies. I used to never do edibles because I was like, oh, I'm out of control. I won't know how yeah, long. They're great. But now that they're like, you know, where they have it down to a literal science, it's wonderful. Yeah, it's um, But marijuana to me has always just been like, oh, just like a warm hug. I just like love it. Yeah, it's, I, I think pothead. it's, I think it's, me too. I think I, I mean, I'll eat edibles five times a week. Do you, uh, can you write on edibles? Well, here's the, here's, I was just about to say, this is what I can do. I can't write scenes on edibles. I, I, I used to think that I could. <laughs> the problem is it's really messy and it's not as cool. But what I can do that is super awesome is I can brainstorm and I can make connections and character revelations. And so I will just write a whole bunch of shit. I mean, pages and pages and pages. I will sit. My cat will be on my lap. I'll have my computer and I'm writing around him. <laughs> But I will write literally pages and then the next morning go like, that works. That's really fucking good. Now I have to do, now what I have to do sober is distill that into outline scenes and then from the outline scenes, write scene scenes. And I do all of that in silence and sober. Like I I will not, I don't play music. I can't, I don't write in a coffee shop. I will never write in a coffee shop. I write at my desk silent i will i think people don't speak their lines out loud so i will read i read both the scene descriptions but also the dialogue because i feel like i want the scene descriptions to be as brief as possible but as evocative as possible and i want them to be fun to read that if you can make someone smile or make someone go like "Ooh, that's a cool turn of the phrase while you're setting up a scene 
great. And then if you make the dialogue pop and be super, super tight, and if you read it out loud, I remember Michelle Yeoh said to me on Star Trek, she goes, you're the only writer on the show. I know you read our lines out loud. I said, I do. She goes, because you write for me in the way that I talk. I said, yeah, well, because I, and she goes, yes, I know English is like my fifth language. So, like, I appreciate that you write for me like that. Madeline Stowe used to say the same thing. She goes, I know you write. You, you, you say the lines out loud because you write very differently for me than you do, say, for Henry Tierney. It's like, yeah, because, you know, Henry is a Shakespeare-trained actor, so he'll, he, 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 Henry was amazing. Henry would record all the lines in the scene that weren't his and then hold the, sp- and, and then have a space. He'd say his lines so he would know that the timing were, but just in his head, so it would be blank. And then say the next lines, so that when he and then he would hit play, and then play the scene. <laughs> so he not only knew all of his lines, but he also knew other people's lines. So if someone went up on a line, so Henry was like that. Madeline was very different. Madeline was like more loosey goosey and trying to stuff. And and they're both great and right in their own ways. But you have to write to the actor, uh, and I think speaking the out loud, Madeline uh, uh, Michelle did say to me. Do you do me with an when you speak my lines out loud? Do you do me with an accent? <laughs> like, well, yeah, but <laughs> it's just me in my office. <laughs> that is a um, that is a wonderful transition to how I know you, Ted, uh, which is revenge, revenge which is how yes. I met you yes. when I was a showrunner's assistant. When was that? Back in 2013, 2012? When was that show even on? I think 2012. Yeah. Holy shit! That was a long time ago. Ten years ago. It was. You used to sleep on my couch. A uh, dude. I I would come into my office, and then I would I had this couch, this long couch that was the back was to the door, mm-hmm. and the lights would be out. And I would open the door because I, you know, we'd have a break from the writers' room, and I come into my office and I turn on the lights and I just see a hand come up. Yo, <laughs> I, I'm a, I was a bad I was a bad assistant on that show because I was like trying to be a writer and I worked at Paramount. And I was like, so this is fucking child's play. Like I can do anything and, um. But the point is that I met some wonderful people on that show, one of whom is yourself. And uh, so when I started this podcast, I was like, I would love to interview Ted and hear his story. Because from what I remember, you know, you maybe had started a little later, more later in life than some other writers. And you have a a very interesting journey, too. And I think people would want to hear about that. And, um, you know, what I want to start with are just like the basics of like, where did you grow up, Ted? Oh, that's even that's a loaded question. I will say that I've I have a very unusual path. That's okay. My, my yellow brick road is uh, long and winding. Long and winding, as Paul McCartney might say. We're, yeah, we should talk about Get Back, by the way, because I watched the whole thing too, and I know you're a fucking Beatles freak. And, and I'm actually in the process. I just last night finished disc one from watching it for my second time, and I forgot that it ends, and I literally just got chills, and now I'm getting choked up. And it, <laughs> ends with George quitting the band and Peter Jackson brilliantly using my favorite song of all time which is which is uh all it, which is from uh, all things must pass is isn't it a pity and it's a demo of George playing a, a version of the song I've never heard before and all the Beatles wrestling with the fact that George just quit the band and that brings us into and credits and like a Beatles dork I'm 
clutching my cat on the on the couch bawling uncontrollably i've seen this before i know they get back together and i'm bawling uncontrollably and then i immediately go on youtube find that version of the demo and then convert it so that i now put it into my camping mix for you know my what i have what i call my good night mix uh-huh. when we're all three o'clock in the morning it's time to go to bed it's a 50 minute little quiet mix that's very cool yeah um so all right here's 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 the thing uh i kind of grew up all over um uh, born in a on a little farm in connecticut my parents were well my dad was kind of a hippie uh activist less hippie more of an activist he was one of the people that helped overthrow columbia there's some interesting pictures of him in the dean's office uh he was, depending on who you talk to, his sister, a member of the Weathermen, at least associated with the Weathermen. <laughs> um, so he was a radical. Uh, I was born. They lived on a farm, had a lot of people there. And my mom finally said, you know, I think I think um, you need to, you got a kid now. <laughs> it's time for you to get a job. And so we did. Uh, we then moved around. He started later. So that was like when he was 30. Uh, he was a late bloomer as am I. Um, and then we moved to Boston. I'm not a fan of Boston. That's okay. Uh, listen, I have a say, I have a sweet spot only because I went to school there and the Red Sox reversed the curse. But everybody else I know is like, fuck Boston. And my experience there was that... Uh, well, you were in a university. Yes, absolutely. But I, I totally understand like the inherent racism there because yes. I saw it firsthand wherein... You could be a fucking white BU student or a white Harvard student beating someone to death on the street, and the cops would look the other way. Yeah. If you're a black man jaywalking, they will you're fuck done. you up faster than you could say you're Boston. Done. Yeah, and if and and in the '80s, it was kind of a weird time too because I was weird. Uh, we we moved to Switzerland. Oh uh, shit! And we lived in a town outside of Geneva called Tonnay. Uh, I went to a school called Ecola, which was. Um, Everyone was from a different country, and it was, you know, moving from Boston to Geneva was like moving from Boston to Narnia. <laughs> and that's a pilot. All my friends were from like Kenya and Ireland and uh, Sweden, and like everyone was from a different country: India, Pakistan, uh, Taiwan. Like, and you'd be like, "Wait, so wait, what is Muslim? What's?" You know what is reincarnation, and and it just completely opened my mind and blew my mind, and I it was the happiest I've ever been in my life. And then one day, my dad was like, "Well, we're moving back to Boston," and that was like moving from Narnia to Boston. <laughs> what year was this when you moved back? In eighty four, eighty five, something okay. like that. Um, and I was not, you know, I I, I we didn't have a TV in Europe. Uh, the one thing that we did have was we had a movie theater that showed interesting movies in English. It was the one theater. And so that's where I saw, like, Lawrence of Arabia for the first time in 2001. And the other thing that we had was my, they would send videotapes over of HBO. And they would just put in a six-hour tape and hit record. And... So my brother and I, would, my dad had this at the office, and he said you could come in and grab these videos, and we wouldn't know what would be on it. So sometimes it was like all that jazz and Apocalypse Now, 
And sometimes it would end before the end of the movie because the tape would just run out. <laughs> or sometimes, and then so my brother and I, that's where my brother and I started coming up with um, ideas to write. We'd be like, well, how, well, how would you end 2001? How would you end Apocalypse Now? Because like, we didn't know what the yeah. end of the movie was. And that got us into kind of storytelling, and we, we did that. And then when we moved back to Boston, it was weird. Like, we, we were very tight, and I missed my friends in Europe, and everyone in Boston was mean and thought we were weird because I didn't know what the A-team was. <laughs> you know, and like, I was like, I don't know. I like Billie Holiday and, and Monty Python, <laughs> you know? Like, that was just not cool. Uh, and we... And and we really got into Monty Python. Actually, that's how I got into writing. Uh, there, I I have a. Well, I'll tell the story. Please. Uh, it's a it's a little bit of a walk. It's okay. But we have time. The payoff, I think, is not bad. Uh, my brother and I came across the Holy Grail, and we were I, we used to have a game where we would we had an old TV that had a, a dial, mm -hmm. and so you would. We would spin the dial, and whatever channel it landed on, we were going to watch uh, for 30 seconds and then decide if we're going to watch that or not. Well, we, <laughs> we were spinning the dial, and we finally land on this British guy standing in a field say, describing what the trees are behind him and when they were planted. And right when I'm about to turn the dial, another British guy comes on and takes his microphone and walks away and says, the castle you see behind me, and he starts describing the castle and then the first guy my brother and i are like what, the, what what's happening and then the first guy who we didn't know was john cleese walking up to michael palin goes give me that microphone back and then they go no no and they start running they're chasing each other and then they're fighting and driving cars like we're like we run into my parents and we bring them back and we're like what is this and like oh that's monty python and it's like you knew about this and you didn't tell us how what what is happening and then the next day just by chance Monty Python, the Holy Grail was on. We watched that. Now we're obsessed. Yep. Because of Europe and storytelling, we start writing. We're, we're also very invested in, in history. My dad really was, uh, he was, he loved history. And when we lived in Europe, it was amazing because you're living in history. Yeah. And the one good thing that Boston really has going for it is that there's a lot of history there. And they, they do acknowledge it and, I mean, they. There's a lot of mythology about it as well, but, but you know, it's when you're younger, you you think it's kind of cool that you're surrounded by so much history, as opposed to a place like Los Angeles, where Steve Martin has that great line in L.A. stories, like well, some of these buildings are almost 50 years old. <laughs> but um, we wrote a, a script called Monty Python and the American Revolution, and we assigned all the roles and. and did you write this by hand? Yeah. Wow. And then we typed it. On like a typewriter? On a typewriter, yeah. And then we were like, well, we have to send this to Python. And so I called PBS. I was probably 14 or 15 oh at the time. God. And they're like, you know, they haven't made Monty Python in years. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, like they, they made Life of Brian. They made, they made um, you know, Meaning of Life. And they might make another one. They're like, well, I guess you could send it here to this BBC place. So we do. About six months later, we get a letter back from England, handwritten. We open it up. It says Python at the top, and it's from Michael Palin. 
And he says, the lads and I all read the script, and it's quite good. You're, you're very funny. You should keep up with this. We're not making uh, any more Python movies. But I will tell you, uh, I am in Terry G's new movie, and Terry G being Terry Gilliam. And, um, and uh, Robert De Niro gets to shoot me in the head, so keep an eye out for that movie. <laughs> So we're like, our minds are blown. Yeah. Oh, my God. You must have fucking screamed and done a absolutely, jig. Absolutely. About the apartment. And, and, and also, of course, then every Friday, because this is before the internet, and before, like, the only way you knew in Boston about when movies were coming out was Friday, the Boston Globe would have all these full-page ads yeah. for what movies were coming out. Yeah, we had out. the calendar section. Sure. Yeah. So my brother and I, every Friday, would look through and look to see who's anything with Terry Gilliam, Michael Palin, Robert De Niro. And then finally one day we see Michael Palin, Terry Gilliam, Robert De Niro. It's a movie called Brazil. So we go and we Amazing. we take the train into the city. We tell my mom we're going to go see this movie. And then we go see the movie. We walk out and my brother's like, what do you think? I said, that's the best movie I've ever seen. He goes, yeah, let's see it again. So we go back in. <laughs> And we come out afterwards, and he goes, what do you think? And I said, it's still the best movie I've ever seen. Let's see it again. <laughs> so we go in. Now, mind you, we've been gone now for nine hours, like two 14 or 15-year-old yeah. kids. There's no cell phones, no nothing. We finally take the train back. It's dark. My mom is pissed off, like so furious. Where have you been? Like, we went to go see a movie. She goes, what? And well, like three times. But So now, fast forward many, many years later. Uh, I get nominated for an Emmy for writing soap opera, which was a job that I did, and we'll probably get into. We're going to get into that. Was that for As the World Turns? Well, that was one of them, yes. Uh, one, life, one... one Life to Live? Yes, and then I also wrote for Guiding Light, which I, for some reason isn't on IMDb, but okay. I don't, it doesn't matter. Okay, but... It doesn't matter. Just want you to know I did my homework. I appreciate okay. that. Uh, I get nominated. My parents fly out. We go to our, my favorite Italian restaurant in New York the night before the Emmys. Then seated at the table next to us is Michael Palin and his oh wife. Oh, my God. Now, I'm I'm probably 27 at this time, so I don't really know what I'm doing, but I kind of wave the maitre d' over like you see in a movie, and I go, would you send a bottle of wine over? And they're like, well, what kind of wine? I'm like, a Wine in a bottle? Uh, one made of <laughs> fucking, fucking grapes. grapes. Yeah. <laughs> so they send it over. Michael Palin walks over and he goes, oh, that's, that was very nice. It's totally unnecessary. I says, well, actually, you know, I'm a huge fan. He goes, oh, that's very nice. And I said, actually, you know, my, my brother and I, many, many years ago when we were kids, we, we sent you the script and I start talking about it. And he just he cocks his head and he goes, was it about the American Revolution? And my mom just starts crying. My dad starts crying. He goes, that was rather good. What, what do you do now? And I said, well, I'm a writer. I just got nominated for an Emmy. And he goes, oh. And then he and his wife sat down. It was like the perfect oh full my God. circle moment. That's that incredible. doesn't really happen in life. But I, it happened. And my mom was there. And my dad was there. So it was like this weird thing. Like, how is this thing happening? But... but um, that's a long way of saying I grew up in Boston, I grew up in Switzerland, and then I also grew up, and then my 
junior year of high school, we moved to uh, Palo Alto, outside of San Francisco. Uh, great time to move your junior year of high school. <laughs> great time. Really, really hot. Really awesome. But uh, I will say that was a life-changing move. Uh, I did not like Boston. I felt like this, this, this is a reference that will date me. I felt like Corporal Klinger. I was ready to wear a dress and get a Section 8 and get sent out of Boston, whatever I had to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I got to Palo Alto, uh, I kind of shed all the stuff that you had to do in Boston, like care about sports and do stuff like that. And I got into theater, and I met all like theater people. They took me to see Rocky Horror Picture Show. That changed my life. Uh, I felt part of a community that, of weirdos because I always felt like a weirdo. Um, and then I started a theater company, and I think that's probably the only reason why I got into film school. Uh, I wrote three plays, put them on, won the, I don't know, something called like the American, the Presidential Writing Award or something like that where you, the vice president gives you a piece of plastic or something. <laughs> Um, it was Dan Quayle at that time. So it was for some plays that I wrote about about Boston, actually, and about how intolerant it was. And I I can't imagine how earnest and awful <laughs> scripts were, but like they worked. We we performed them for like forty schools in California and went on tour and all that kind of stuff. And that got me into film school. But that's so it was like this weird mix of very very traditional New England old world crap. Awesome fairy tale Europe, followed by more crap, and then this kind of very potent two years uh, in Palo Alto. And it's not Palo Alto today. It was a very different Palo Alto back in the eighties. It was it was real small and hippies, and it wasn't that far removed. It was only like twenty years from like the literally twenty years from the. Like the power, the flower power movement, you know, like 68, 69. So. What year? When did it, was the dead still playing around? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. No, I saw the dead. I'm, I'm not a dead fan. I, look, I, I like fish. People go, why do you like fish and not dead? Well, fish knows how to play their instruments. <laughs> the reason, the reason I'm asking you is for after, for like 20 years, I've just been like, I don't give a fuck about the Grateful Dead. I have no fucking interest. Fuck you shut the fuck up but like i have an appreciation for fish i have a couple i had a couple records i love the album junta which is so yeah. random but like and recently i'm like okay i like get it and i understand it but but i'm not like a fucking deadhead so i'm just curious if that was a part of your journey yeah. which it's not i mean it was only part of my <clears throat> journey in the sense like for instance my history book this was weird ha- jerry garcia went to palo alto high school so he was one of the names that was listed. On, oh, I, I should have kept that book. Yeah, you book. should have. Oh, my God. Uh, Joan Baez was another one that we Shut came across. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, they were a little bit a part of my journey because, you know, you were starting to kind of... I, I was playing in different pools that you, I just didn't have access to in Boston. And where did you go to college? I went to USC Filmic Writing, which uh-huh. was an undergrad program. It was a four-year program. There was 22 or 23 of us accepted. Holy shit. Um, I think 14 graduated because we had a lot of people drop out along the way. I, I, From what I understand, USC has a very good program right now. Yeah. Uh, it was not a good program <laughs> in 89 to 93. It was, 
it was it was garbage it was it was really garbage it was taught by people um who wrote books like how to write a how to write a script in 30 days you're oh like god okay you can <laughs> yeah but is it any anymore. good <laughs> i don't know should you <laughs> like yeah maybe for a vomit draft but like and none of them had sold anything i i i did have i will say i i, I met a couple of friends that were incredibly important to me and there were I had two mentors that were life changing for me. One was Abe Polanski, who was a member. He was blacklisted in the in the fifties. He was a member of the Hollywood Ten. He was just an incredible, incredible mentor. Um, he really taught me always stand on the right side of history. I think at a time much earlier than I would have been thinking about those things. He said people will always be coming to ask you to name names and just just know who's asking and know why they're asking and then nelson Gidding, who became one of the most important people in my life who taught screenwriting he wrote movies like the andromeda strain and and the haunting uh nominated for an oscar for i want to live um really he was he was just he wrote a lot of bob robert wise movies mm -hmm. um just an amazing human being and took a great he and his wife hildy oh she was an amazing person too uh, uh, Nelson got me my first agent. He w we sold three um, projects together. Holy shit! Um, Were you a student? I was a student, and then his TA. I was a Polanski's TA as well. He asked me to be his TA for three years, so I got to be his TA and and just really learn about. You know, Abe was interesting because he was special forces in um, World War II. He was wow. dropped behind lines to blow up bridges before D Day. Holy shit! He freed two concentration camps oh my god and then came home to be labeled by mccarthy as the most dangerous man in america so he had a real and did not work he went to prison and then did not work for until robert redford brought him back for a movie called tell willie boys there here and but he was like driving a cab hmm. because he stood up for his principles and he you know, Elliot Kazan named him. That's why I will never watch uh, On the Waterfront ever again. It's why I think he's a piece of shit of a human being because he named his friend because he's like, ah, I got a play and I got a daughter and a wife. And, and Abe was like, I got a daughter and a wife and I got a movie. What the fuck are you talking about? What are you naming name for? Like Abe literally fought Nazis and then was in jail. That's fucked. That's all I can say. I wish I had something smarter to say, but like that's incredibly fucked up. But I so while the school wasn't great, there was still access to some things. Um, it's where I had my first Kurosawa class. It's where I had my first World War II class, um, where you would just really do deep deep dives into movies that were not just the. I didn't know what Bataan was or Wake Island or or Guadalcanal Diaries were. I didn't know those movies. I certainly didn't know Kurosawa in a way that, well, that's not true. I, I found a list of my top 25 <laughs> movies when I was 17, and Kurosawa's Dreams was number 17. So, uh, that's pretty I, impressive. Yeah, I was, I was, he was on my radar, but I, I, didn't, I didn't have as... It, it's not like how it is today. Like It was much, much, much harder to get your hands on movies. Uh, and when you did get your hands on them, they were only four or three. They were they were on video. 
So like we were not watching them letterbox. We were not watching them widescreen. We were only seeing 60% of the screen. I remember when I finally saw 2001 as an adult on the big screen, I went, oh, now I get it. <laughs> right. All that stuff. Yeah. Right. It turns out the 40% of the screen I couldn't see. Very important to understanding this movie. Ted, did you also, do you still teach at USC? Because I read online. You know, by the way, you know you have a Wikipedia? I don't. I do? Yes. Oh, okay. And it's and it's it's rather informative. Nothing bad on there. I don't know if you're allowed to be shitty on I Wikipedia. Clearly none of my ex-wives have updated No, but, but it says you're an adjunct professor. I was. I was an adjunct. I was in 2001. I think, yeah, something like that. Early 2000s, I was. Were you teaching, like, screenwriting? Screen yeah, I was teaching I was teaching screenwriting. I, you know what's funny? I, it's so weird you bring that up. A former student of mine that I had not seen since 2001 or two contacted me this year and said, you're my favorite professor, and you're the only one. I got nominated for uh, uh, an award for being a DP. And I'd like you to be my guest because I would not have done this if not for what you taught me. And I was like, jeez. I had to look him up. I'm like, wait, who is this guy? <laughs> wait. And then when I, when I met him in person again, I was like, oh, yeah, I sort of remember you. You were a good student. But, uh, I mean, that was decades ago. I was very – he remembered my lectures. And I still have my lectures I, in case I – no one will hire me to be a writer. You can always teach, right? That's true. That's true. Um. What I want to talk to you about now, I guess, is what was the first real live like TV job you got? Was it those those it soap, soap operas? operas? It was the soap operas. Um, you know, it's funny. Like there was a time in my life I tried to hide my time in soap opera. I even tried to get IMDb to erase them. Of course, they won't erase anything. Mm -hmm. But uh, unless you're famous, <laughs> and I'm certainly not that. Um, but what I I, I moved to New York. I, I was I was, had been a high school teacher in Los Angeles. Uh, Where'd you teach? In South Central in Judah School. Okay, and uh, that was hard. <laughs> I fucking bet. Uh, and I was only twenty two, and at that time they could hold students until they were twenty. <laughs> oh boy! So I had some students that were only two years younger than me, which was really weird. I bet. Uh, and then my wife at the time and I had decided we wanted a change. Our life was too comfortable. And we the one good part of our marriage was that when things we 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 used to shake things up a lot. We would move and just be weird. Um and we both said let's just move to New York and I got a job teaching uh in New York uh on the Upper East Side. But while I was there, I was uh you know, like looking at trying to get into TV or something. And, and my brother was a part of that. He would, would temping at, at some of these as an office worker. He yeah. said, yeah, there's lots of soap operas here. I was like, huh, I love Tootsie. <laughs> uh, soap operas, like they probably need people. And so I just watched soap operas for like two weeks. I would record them during the day and then come home from teaching and then watch like Guiding Light. I went, ah, shit, I can do this. And I wrote up some a script. 
I can't believe I did any of this because I had no idea what the fuck I was doing. <laughs> and were you, this was still on a typewriter. This is pre-computer. No, 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 no. The, by this point, this was mid '90s. So I had a, I had a, I was a big computer nerd at that point. I built like a super gaming computer and all that. So I had a, a PC. Okay, you were a PC guy, not a Mac guy. Not then. Yes, okay. I was definitely. All, but now you're a Mac guy. Now I'm Mac. But okay, good. I was massive, massive PC guy because I want. I had. I just kept putting in new cards uh-huh. and, and you know um so i i wrote up this horrible script i'm sure it's horrible <laughs> like and se- and my brother was able to slip it to someone and they brought me in and they're like that's not how you do things this isn't uh, but it's not bad and i had already i've been hired to write some stuff it never got made with my mentor nelson we did we even did we got hired by warner brothers to try to do an adaptation of the superhero animal man that's that's like i'm sure grant morrison like it was my favorite comic book grant morrison wrote this amazing run and so we tried to do this adaptation of it nelson had always been trying to get me into it he wanted he was he was wonderful he he he, I've, i've been very lucky that i've had like three people especially in my life that have have really gone to bat for me at different points. There's one person I'll probably talk about later that has definitely, definitely done that, changed my life. But Nelson taught me a lot of interesting ideas and how to be a go-getter. And so I was trying to be a go-getter, and yeah. it sort of worked. I mean, they were like, well, this isn't how you do it, but we kind of, you know, we're, we kind of need someone. So I started on Guiding Light, and then I went. Staff, were you just like staff writer? Like there were, they, No, they would just give you some, like, when they had an ep- writer going on vacation got or something it. like that. And then I got on to As the World Turns. And then I was a staff. Then then it's not the same. It's it's like you're you're a writer. <laughs> you're not you're not producing the episodes because there's usually five to six writers. You write six episodes a week. You only you, you shoot five a week, so you're bank one. Um, and you do that 50 weeks a year. <laughs> so my first year of writing television, I wrote 56 episodes of television. That's fucking wild, it's, especially in a world where it's like eight-episode order, 12-week yeah. room. Yeah. So some days I would write, some weeks I would write two episodes a week. And you would come in on Monday, and Monday was notes day. So Monday was like, they, you turn in your scripts, uh, you turn in your episodes on, on a Friday, Okay. That means over the weekend, you're reading everyone else's episodes. And it, this was back in the day. It was just not, we didn't get stuff by email. You would have yeah. message, you'd have a big package show up with six scripts in them that you had to spend all weekend reading. And then on Monday, the six of us writers would go in and sit around a table. And then you'd have an executive from CBS. An exe- uh, yeah, that was CBS. Executive from CBS. An executive from the production company, an executive from the soap company, because they're called soaps for a reason. They were made by soap companies to sell soap, so they had opinions, I too. I had no clue that's why. Yeah. Holy shit. And the executive producer. So you have those four, and then you had to sit there while they had all six scripts in front of you, and, they, and every script had a page number, and every line had a line number. And so then someone would go, well, I have a note on page one, line three. And someone would say, oh, I have a, line, I have a note on page one, line two. And so, no, no, uh, page one, line one. 
and I'm getting PTSD yeah. just because I I've I've been in scenarios like that, and I can't believe that you had to answer like four different five different people in that. And and that would be so that would go for like about eight hours. Oh my god! Then you'd have to rush home, retype it, or you know rewrite it, and you'd have to bold all the stuff you did differently. And sometimes I started to realize like I don't think they're reading it. So sometimes I would just bold what was there, <laughs> and then they'd be like, "Great, like, okay, that's what I thought." So then on Tuesday you come in, and you've got a whiteboard, and it's got Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And so now you go like, well, what are we going to do this week? And so you have Tuesday and Wednesday to lay out five days of material. And what you're fighting for is Monday or Friday. Because those are the days that episodes, those, those are the episodes that something actually happens. Friday is a cliffhanger. All the big stuff that you've been building up to happens on that day. And then Monday is all the, oh, like, what happened? What's, yeah. what's, what's the payoff? Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, nothing happens because those were low <laughs> viewership, right? Just a stall. So they, you're just spinning wheels. That's when you have grandma come by for six acts. And that's the <laughs> other thing. It's like we could only have about, I think it was six or seven sets per episode because they were all just built in this uh, rectangle and the cameras would just rotate. Like so, you just shoot the whole, you shoot the whole episode in one day. That's incredible. And then at the end of the day, they tear down the ones that you aren't going to use the next day, and they put up some different ones. So it's, I mean, it's just it was insane. And I did that, I did that until two thousand. And you know, I wrote a hundred and seventy something episodes. Do those still air any of those shows? I have no idea. I was just asking for the. I was curious if you were getting green check, I mean, green, I, green envelopes. Here's here's those. what's funny is I get a penny an episode, so sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I get like. So I think they're playing in some places like Argentina or like <clears throat> you know Pakistan, like like they're really like like in foreign markets. Yeah. They so I'll still get like a buck fifty for like eighty episodes, you know, or something like that. It's crazy, but. um uh, I, I and then like, by the time I was on One Life to Live, it was like I can't. I don't think I can. I, I what happened was two things. Uh, I was. I started looking around. I, I was getting burnt out, and I started acting like the other people in my room. Where I was twenty at that point, I was twenty nine, and I was making good money. Like you're, it's not. It's not prime time money. Yeah, but I bought it. I bought a place in New York. My wife at the time and I, we would, every five weeks, we would, you know, I would turn in the scripts on Friday and then we'd hop on a plane and go to Ireland or go to Paris mm. and then fly back Monday morning. I would just go straight from JFK, still like reeking of cigarettes and drunk and be like, all right, I'm ready to hear from my notes. <laughs> but um, so I could feel like, the same itch that made us move from L.A., we were just too comfortable that it just felt um, like this isn't right. Like, I'm too young to be this comfortable. Yeah. And then I also started to notice that the people are, I started, I, I, I called us daytimers. Like, that's who we were. We were daytimers. This is, this is, because it was weird. It was, there were people on As the World Turns that had been on since the first day. 
from the first episode, which meant that they had been playing that role for 50 years. So, and there have been writers on the show that have been writing the show for like 15, 20 years. And I was looking around at them and I'm going like, I'm 29. And these people are all 60. I'm the youngest person here. And I, and you could smoke and drink. And, and then I was like, that sounds e- incredible. Well, but everyone kept going like, well, you know, one of these days I'm going to get out of here and I'm going to write my, my, my great American novel. And I was like, you're never writing your novel. You're never leaving this. You're, you're done. And I was like, I got to get the fuck out of here. And the other thing that happened, the third thing that happened was I saw that H- we did a test about HD. And I went, oh, we're done. Because once you moved up from just 460 resolution mm-hmm. to 720 or 180, yeah. you went, ooh, those sets look horrible. <laughs> and, oh, my God, that really crappy Tijuana uh, hair job that you got, the hair implants that you got, that looks horrible. <laughs> oh, my God, this is – we're doomed. And then also you started seeing that things were happening like, like – um, Reality TV had taken over so much, and game shows were coming back. I was like, yeah, this, it's so much more expensive to do a soap opera than to just do daytime, whose line is it anyway, yeah. or, or Ricky Lake, or whatever yeah. was on at that time. And I was like, yeah, we're done. So then I got out of it. So did you? Is it was your next job, Rizzoli and Isles? No, no, no. Uh, I, I actually left the industry. Oh, I mean, I tried to do stand-up comedy for a little while uh, until I realized you have to be funny. <laughs> no one tells you that. You don't, don't realize that. But I then I moved behind, and I was going to be like, I thought I was going to be the next Lauren Michaels. And, mm-hmm. and I, I was at a very exciting time in comedy in New York. It was a really, you know, Eddie Pepitone and CeCe Pleasance and Patrick Gallo and... Um, and Dan Cronin and Josh Commerce and is it fucked up that I don't know any of those? It's fine. It's like these are comics, comics. Like these are people who were super. Like if you look on any writing staff for everything from Family Guy to all the late night talk shows, the Saturday Night Live, they're all there. Got it. Uh, and I had them all writing sketches and doing different stuff, and we did lots of live shows, and it was all great until nine eleven, <laughs> and then the world forgot how to be none. Like that, I went nuts. The whole world went nuts. Everyone's, we were close to getting a sketch comedy show up and running. Uh, called we're not, uh, we're not that way. Um, and then I left and I moved to San Francisco and did weird things. I drove trucks or worked, uh, did worked at a medical research lab studying. Uh, uh, Alzheimer's and HIV and its effects on brain structure and function. Uh, had a very nice, comfortable life. Did you do the lobstering? This that ba- was much way back way in the back. okay, yeah, East Coast, East Coast. okay. Um, But then uh, you know, put up drywall, all sorts of stuff. Um, and then my cousin Mary Ellen, who was like my older sister, you know, in an Irish family, we, you. There's a lot of like bleed over, and uh, cousins are supposed to look after other cousins. And Mary Ellen, I'm going to get a little emotional. That's okay. Uh, 
she was my hero in a lot of ways. If you look at my house, you will see she's all over my house. Um, uh, she's no longer with us um, because fuck cancer. Uh, but she was an amazing writer, an amazing writer. She was a travel writer and fearless. Like this woman that would just backpack and bike across China back before that was a thing people do now. Yeah. And all through the Middle East and Africa and spent her life writing about it and getting published and being very successful at it. And she was a great inspiration for me at it. Cause in the East coast, you're not supposed to be a writer. That's not a, I mean, you could be a newspaper man, yeah. but not a writer. Uh, and she called me and said, what the fuck are you doing? Running an MRI scanner. I'm like, well, you know, I got you're a writer. Get back down there and write. And I realized, like, oh, I think she's right. Because I was still writing every night. I was dating a girl, a really great girl. And she would get frustrated with me because, like, I would... She's like, you work all day and then you come home. And then you lock up with a computer and you're writing a script? Like, you're an MRI tech. What are you doing? Like, where you, why, are, why am I sitting by myself on the couch? And it's because I had stories in my head and I wanted to get them out. And I couldn't fall asleep unless I got them out. And so then I felt like, oh, I guess I gotta, I gotta do this. And you came back. Yeah. How I, did you come back in? Because everyone's like, oh, once you fucking leave, you can't come back. They're not wrong. Let me tell you, they're not wrong. They don't want you to come back. Oh, I know. Um, I'm just surprised. A, a I want to say, incredible that Mary Ellen told you that. Oh, yeah. That fucking rules. Yeah, she's amazing. And B... Kudos to you for having the fucking guts to be like, yeah, I know. I actually, I need to go back and do that. That's awesome. Well, I, I, here, here's, I, I did a little bit of research and I realized that my time in soap opera only taught me how to be a, a fast writer, and it did. It taught me how to be a very fast writer, and to think and to be in a room and know how to function in a room. It didn't teach me how to be a producer or anything else. And I quickly, I had, I had a friend that I'd known since I'd been young, 19. A guy named Dan Dworkin. Very, very, very successful showrunner guy. When you say Dan Dworkin... Oh, yes, you know Dan Dworkin. You mean Revenge. Revenge Dan Dworkin. So you guys knew each other before that? Yes, we'd known each other since we'd been 19. And Dan, by that point, had become a... By by the time I was trying to come back, he would... I think by that point, he'd probably done at least a couple of TV shows. Okay. Um, so he, and you know, he has a rule, and I, and I agree with him, and I have the same rule, which is you don't give your friends their first job. Because if you do, that's always going to kind of hang over them, and people will be like, yeah, well, he only got that job because he's friends with Dan Dworkin. Like, so I, I, but I, he did tell me, like, what, being a writer meant which i don't think a lot of young people realize when they come in it means also being a producer because by the time you get past a certain level which is executive story editor yeah and what i what i actually grew to like about the the writers room is that there are there are ranks like in the military so and and they exist for a reason like they do in the military which is you're supposed to learn and prove yourself and move your way up and as you move up at each new level, you get more responsibility. Well, when I learned that, I said, well, shit, I don't know how to do any of that stuff. 
So then I came back and I, I just started working. And I mean, like, on shitty commercials and any short film. And I worked every department because I was like, well, I need to know what a grip does. And I need to know what set with it. So I did boom and camera up and grip, electrical, driving, wardrobe. Uh, I didn't do hair and makeup. But I, but I like all, and then I was like, well, okay, then I should. I had a friend who was in editing, so then I built my own Avid system. Oh my god! And then taught myself that. So I spent <laughs> six months learning that at night, and making like short little films, and like, and once I got pretty good at that, then I started. Then I got hired by ABC to be one of their top promo guys. So then I started producing and editing seven spots a day you know for abc and that whole time was also writing and studying primetime tv so this is so long ago i would go and go to blockbuster and rent an entire season of a show and then spend watch all nine dvds and go okay well what did that show do there and that okay so that builds to a commercial break and that so there's an a and b and c plot and so what's a runner? And then and and so when I learned all of that, then I started just writing scripts. And it took I always tell people it took me three scripts to write my first good primetime TV script. And you gotta recognize that you learn as much from a bad script, if not more, than you do from a good one. And so that I would say, Oh, that doesn't work. So don't do that in the next one. And then by the third one I wrote a house because I had done medical research. Yeah. And I figured House seems it was back in the day when you had to write a sample. Yep, and I think samples are better than pilots, and I think it's stupid that shows ask for pilots because what you really want is someone who knows how to be able to write the voice of the show that they're getting hired for, mm -hmm. as opposed to, you know, oh, that's a really cool original idea, but that's not going to be that's not what I need you for in the room. So when I got that house, I gave it to my friend Dan. He goes, "That's the one." You're ready. Go out with that. And so then I got it to, um, through a, a number of different, like, trial and error, to uh, Waylon Green, who uh, took a year to read it. Classic. <laughs> and Tale as old as time. Uh, he called me uh, while I was on my honeymoon for my second marriage and said... Yeah, this is, uh, I read it. It's good. Uh, can you come in tomorrow? I'm running Law and Order Criminal Intent. Uh, pitch some ideas. I'm like, well, I can't because I'm in Hawaii on my honeymoon, but I can be there in a week. Um, he said, okay. And I came in and then I flew back. I had, I spent the honeymoon <laughs> coming up with nine different ideas and uh, came back met with him at the Jack Webb building at Universal. And he was so nice and just congenial. And uh, I pitched the first idea and he went, that's great, you're hired. And I walked out and called my wife and I went, I think, I think my life just changed. <laughs> and that's, and and uh yeah then then it all just kind of i i never stopped working i i did keep editing 
at night. So I was writing Law and Order during the day, but I did not believe like it was going to work out. So I did the graveyard shift at night. <laughs> the um, before I forget, I would like to tell you an amazing anecdote about Dan Dworkin and Jay Beatty. Mm-hmm. I wrote my first feature on well, well, you guys were writing Revenge. Uh, got on the blacklist, whatever. While season two is going on, MTV says we're rebooting Scream. Oh, yes. I don't know if you know this story. Do you know this story? It's ringing a bell, but okay, go, okay. keep going, keep it's, going. It's fucking amazing. I know a friend who's working for the producer, and I'm like, I know everything there is to know about Scream. Like, let me put something together. And by the way, like, I didn't know, like, what a take was, what a thing. I just, like, wrote six pages of, like, well, if you were going to hand me Scream, this is what I would do. And apparently they had already been doing, like, a catacall and, like, meeting showrunners and, like, real big writers, two of whom were Dan and Jay. And I knew this because they were talking about it. Like, we met on Scream and da-da-da. And because it was my first real thing... I emailed them to be like, guys, oh, my God, I just met on Scream, not knowing that they were very much in the thick of trying to get this job. And I'll never forget, Jay Beatty writes me back and goes, what do you mean you just met on Scream? I was like, yeah, no, I was in it. I went and pitched Bob Weinstein my take and da-da-da-da-da. Within a week, they had got the job because I think that they used that info. (laughs) I and called their agents and said, this fucking 25-year-old. We're, we're not losing out to this 25-year-old that sleeps on Ted Sullivan's couch. <laughs> but uh, I always, I, I just like, I love I, I that story. Yeah. And those dudes were always so nice to me. So it's wonderful that they that they got screaming. It's it's awesome that Dan helped you. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, he was great. And the, I, I will say, I so by the time, I did, I did um, Law and Order, Criminal Intent, and then I did Rizzoli Niles. And that was, Brazilian Isles was a horrible, horrible, horrible experience. Uh, it's very well known that the showrunner there was awful and toxic. She was not a good person. Um, and I, it was, it was, it was notoriously ugly. You know, it's so interesting. There was like a doc on showrunning. I don't know if you saw it. Oh, I and did. She, I feel like she's, she's in, in it. it. Oh, yeah. So is Mike. And they're both like talking about like how sunny and bright and easy. Yeah. I was like, no, no, no. no. Um, but I will say, Dan, by that point, so I had already, so I'd done two shows at that point. And then he called me and said, Hey, I think we could use you over at Revenge. Should I pitch you to the showrunner? And I went, Yes. <laughs> and the office was literally, so we were on Paramount, and the office was literally across, across the street. street. So at lunch, I ran across the street, went up, met with Mike. Mike goes, I want you. I go downstairs, call my agents, and said, get me out of this other show. They call the network. The network's like, yeah, she's a lunatic. Of course he can go. <laughs> so then I go, I can't believe I'm going to tell this story. I don't know if I should tell this story. I'll tell it. It's okay. We, by the way, if you decide later, we, we magic of editing. All right. I'll, I'll tell. You the, can tell me the, the I'll tell the, the G-rated yes, version. Okay. okay. So I go over... And I'm gonna leave the show. I, I so all of this has already happened. And you have to go tell Rizzoli, showrunner, you're leaving. Sure, yeah. And she, I go, yeah, I'm leaving the show. And she goes, well, you're not, you're not even a writer. Like, you're, what are you gonna do? And I'm like, I'm leaving the show. <laughs> she said something to me that was incredibly insulting. I said something back that was incredibly insulting, but really witty. And when I've said it to people. <laughs> They, they were like, it. they were like, wow! Did you say that in the moment? I'm like, yeah. And she goes, 
What did she do? She threw a phone at me. Like, literally threw a phone at me. Cell or hard landline? No, hard landline, which was great because it got halfway to me, and then the wire pulled it back. And then she had me escorted off of uh, the lot. Uh, it's like security? security, yeah. Oh, my but God. But I was like, yeah, you can't do it. Can anything. you guys escort me over to Raleigh? Yeah, I know. Because it's I like, a... that's, I got another show that I think is going to be a big hit, so don't worry about it. That's amazing. Yeah, so, um, but yeah, I, I, I think... I think what's important also about that is I got, I think, Rizzoli and Isles because Waylon called and and I did a good job at Law & Order. Uh, when that ended, uh, he said, I want, your, I want to help you get into the industry and keep working because we need people that will be good people in the industry. Um, and Dan has been great and... and I think networking with people is really, really important in maintaining relationships, but not making it transactional, making it authentic, you know? And I, I, I one Christmas I was at Whalen's and I, I said, um, I said, I, you changed my life. Like you literally changed my life. I'd like, how, how can I repay you? And he said, find someone like you <laughs> and do the same thing. And so that's, that's actually what I try to do all the time now. So I, the one caveat I do that's different is is I don't I I really try to help only push marginalized voices or voices that have not typically been um, championed yeah. in the industry. Uh, I I have a friend who's an actor, a white guy, said, "Hey, can you help my son become a writer?" And I went, "No, <laughs> you're famous, you're in the industry." He's going to be fine if that's what he wants to do. <laughs> I don't, he doesn't need my help. But I, so I think a lot of the times, and I'm sure you hear this and you run shows, and, and you know, when people go, oh, I can't find any good people of color or writers. I can't find any good r- women. Or, like, people say that all the time. I'm like, I got a laptop that has 28 scripts by people. <laughs> and I'll always, and so now yeah. people like email me when they're staffing their shows, like, who do you got? Who do you got? So, and so I, and, I mean, when we had to get rid of our agents, I got 12 people on two shows. That's amazing. Um, because I think I think that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm not, I'm not tooting my own horn, but I want to tell you, when we were hiring a writer's assistant on Fairfax, we met a bunch of fucking people that had written on other shows, yada, yada. A friend called me. She's a big deal. I'm like a fucking name dropper. But she said, I know this girl she is in my like program for up and coming she's a she's a nurse she literally works at a hospital but she is dying to break into the industry would you do me a favor interview her and i say absolutely we did a facetime interview with her she was in her car in the hospital parking lot and she told us i took a two-week nighttime course on how to be a writer's assistant so i know how to do the job although i've never done it I promise you I can do the job. And I was like, well, if you're a nurse, like how fucking hard could <laughs> being a writer's dumb yeah, notes yeah, for a cartoon yeah. be? And we hired her. And now she has written on like J.J. Abrams. She she ha- she can't stop getting work. And she's an incredible That's writer. Amazing. That's and, right. and the best feeling I have, like, yeah, sure, uh, I've had some wins here and there. But like knowing that I was able to lift that person up and give them the shot and like pull them out of a hospital and be like, please, like, do it that is the most rewarding thing of all not 
you know, yeah, sure, you know, it's nice being nominated for awards, which I haven't, and money is great too, but like being able to point to someone and be like, I saw talent before it was talent and knew that if someone gave that person a shot, that's what it's about to me. Yeah, I, 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 I think the personal connections that I've had in this industry are more rewarding than anything. They're my favorite part of the industry. Yeah. I, I am, I'm much older than you. (laughs) Um, I'm certainly much more cynical than you, uh, and broken than you, but, um, and sometimes I will say things like, God, I wish I never did this. I wish I did something else. I say that all the time. Literally told my manager that today at lunch. And I, your manager takes you to lunch. What's that like? <laughs> well, you if you had one, you could go to lunch. You know, but um, but uh, if I did not do this, I would not have the most important people in my life in my life, and I have the most incredible people I've ever met in my life are from this industry. The bummer is the worst people I've ever known in my life are also from this Dude, industry. Totally. So it it's 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 tricky. And and I think I don't know if I'm ever gonna have I, I like being Spock to other people's Kirk. I like I like helping them make their show. It'd be nice to have my own show. I hope that happens. I don't know if it's gonna happen, but what I know that I can do is try to make the writers' rooms and the sets be as um a safe and supportive and creative and fun and inspiring as possible. Like, that's that's the thing. Like, you know, we met on Revenge. Yeah. I've had many, many, a very, I won't say who, they're, she's as big as they get, go like, oh, you were on that revenge staff i was like yeah like that's the all-star team like well they were the all-stars i was kind of like the (laughs) the utility player but uh yeah like whether you think that show is great or not i mean it's it's a soap opera the the staff was incredible yeah you know and you can't really judge the talent of the people sometimes by the show that's produced but you can certainly judge what the work environment is like and and how how high quality the people are and, and when you look out in the room and you don't see a whole bunch of people on their phones and that you're not up at a whiteboard by yourself but everyone is treating it as if it was their episode because every episode is their episode and we're all in this together that's that's a really special feeling yeah like, by by the time we got to season 3 and 4 revenge that room was so tight and so beautiful and so supportive and and we we pushed each other and i think it's very important to be the least talented person in the room because when you are <laughs> you are evolving if you're sitting at the table and you're the funniest person at the table or the smartest person at the table or the most talented person at the table you're at the wrong table one of my co-creators of Fairfax said, I am more than happy to be the dumbest guy in any room. Yeah, yeah. That's the only way you learn. And if you stop learning, then you are really sliding towards death. And I, I hope I have at least, like, you know, 15 or 20 years before that happens. I think so. I think so. Can I ask you? I, it's your podcast. You can ask me yeah. anything. 
you have written on some shows that like people are fucking obsessed with Supergirl, Riverdale, uh, Star Trek. And uh, and obviously every show is incredibly challenging and has its its difficulties. Even in these challenging, difficult situations where there are budgetary constraints and time constraints and just like not enough hours in the fucking day. Are there are there any are there like do you feel any sense of like pride or like a reward, you know, the good and the bad? Like, do you do you take any pride in knowing that like I work on something or I have worked on things that people fucking cherish and love the same way that I may have cherished something growing up, whether it was Brazil or Monty Python? Like, there are people out there that treat River Riverdale like it is the fucking Talmud. Yeah, you know? no, that's true. I mean, I, 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 it's funny. Like Riverdale is a very interesting beast, um, because I don't think people in North America anymore really get Riverdale. I think they just wanted it to stay as a season one show of just Archie's at high school and and doing this. And you know, does he like Betty or does he like Veronica? <laughs> and and we got crazier. They got crazier and crazier. I joined it a a, a little after they. They started a uh, couple of seasons after they started. And then we just kept getting crazier and crazier and crazier. And in, when I went to Europe this summer and I was backpacking and traveling around and people found out, I, like people in Europe are crazy about it. Like they get it. People in South America, they get it. People in Asia, when I was in Asia, they get it. In North America, it feels a little bit more like, why aren't they just talking about like the, the dance? And you're like, I don't know, because we did that. Yeah. Now we're doing something different. Um, I loved being in Europe and getting that kind of juice of like people really understanding the tongue and cheek of it, and, yeah. and but also understanding the real of it. Like even when we're totally bananas, we try to also find a way to have really. Uh, a, a, we have a very diverse cast. We have a very diverse writers' room. We try to bring up really interesting ideas and couch them in this crazy Riverdale kind of lingo. Uh, so that feels great. I I think Star Trek's a little different for me because I was I grew up a Star Trek fan. More Trek than Star Wars? Like yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No Star Trek was was one of the primary reasons why I became a writer. How do you feel about the JJ Abrams, the first one? We don't have to talk about Khan or whatever the fuck, but like the first JJ so, anyways, Thoughts. so I was, I was. By the way, I know you're talking about River. <laughs> okay, sorry. I'll, we'll come back to that. <laughs> sorry, Ted. Uh, Riverdale. Yeah, no, but I'll tell you. I'll, you know what's the moment I was most proud of something. Um. And and I wasn't on the show for very long, but uh, on the in the first season, but on Supergirl, I wrote a lot of the episodes. I uh, the first season, I wrote like I think I was five of the first thirteen. Uh, was a writer on them, and I produced a lot of them. I think I produced seven of them. I ran into you on the Warner Brothers lot yeah. on set, and I yeah. came and watched you do an episode. Yeah, it was, and that was a beast. Uh, Melissa was incredible, and Melissa was a great person to go through it with because mm -hmm. um, she was working incredible hours and insane, and she was in every scene and then having to promote the show, and she was just, we were both worked to death. And then I left the show, I did a couple of other shows. And then when I was doing Star Trek and promoting Star Trek, it might have been season one, or I can't remember if it was season one or two at Comic-Con, and we ran into each other. Um, and 
she jumped on me and hugged me and and I hugged her and we were talking trying to catch up and right as we were just starting to get into catching up there was this tug on her sleeve and she looked down and there was a little girl probably I don't have children so I don't I don't know nothing about birth and no babies but Smart. they're like I don't know she was either 6 or 40 I don't know something <laughs> like that but probably closer to 6 and uh she's in a supergirl outfit this little girl and Melissa turned to me and goes and she's looking at Melissa in the same way that I would have looked at Christopher Reeve in 1978 like this is supergirl I'm actually seeing her this she's is what real. I dreamed. She's real, and she's my hero. And Melissa turned to me and said, sorry, this is a job for Supergirl. And then knelt down, and then that was it. And I think that may be the last... No, 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 I have seen her since then. But, but like, and then I just... I was like, and then I had to go do promo for, for Star Trek. But And I remember thinking, like, to see a six or seven or 40-year-old girl um, look at Melissa... And see herself and be proud and to be wearing the costume. Because I used to dress up as Sulu because he was my favorite character. And um, I I just was like, it felt kind of full circle. But it also, I felt like all the hard work and all that. Like, you know, fanboys will shit on everything, right? Yeah. But in that moment, I was like, you could shit on anything, man. And I wouldn't care. There's a force field around it. Because, like, that was, for me, that's... That's also a moment I will think of on my deathbed, and that'll be a happier yeah. thought because I, you know, that was other people's show. I was just, I was, I was just working on it. I, I tried to put as much of myself into it as possible, but I felt very proud in that moment in a way that doesn't happen very often. I, I, I feel very proud about Riverdale, and I know to some people that sounds silly, but no I, way. But I'm. I love when it connects with people. And I love that so many people who have felt different and weird. I I grew up, I'm a straight, white, cis dude. But I grew up very, very much an outsider in Boston where I just did not fit in. In the 80s, it was not cool to not like sports, to like comic books, to like Billie Holiday and not, you know, Warrant or whatever the fuck was playing. Like... I just didn't, I was, you know, people thought I was gay because I just didn't like, and they beat, I was so bullied, my parents had to move me to a different school. They had to pull me, because I, kids smashed my cello to pieces. I, you know, like, I, I just, I just grew up being abused, and because I was weird, and, and that's what I hate about Boston, is it's a towny town, and people are proud that they... I'm, I'm living three blocks away from where I was born. And you think that's good? Yeah. Like, wow. Okay. Get out and fucking yeah, get some perspective, to Do dude. something else than yeah. this. This is how it's always been done. That's a, always a horrible excuse for yeah. why you're doing something. And so I, I, I'm, I don't seem like the right messenger sometimes for that stuff, but I, but I do feel like I can plug into some of the loneliness and the w- desire to belong and not to belong to mainstream, to belong to our own thing. And so I think Riverdale is really a home for that. And I, I'm, I think Roberto Aguayo Sacasa, who's, he's dreamt of doing this show since he was 10. Um, he, he's a incredible, I mean, he's an amazing playwright. And his, 
he's just an incredible writer. But he's had a vision. And sometimes, like, I'm in that room, and I'll be like, and he and I will talk <laughs> afterwards. I'm like, I don't think this is going to work. And he goes, mm, I think it's going to work. And then when we see the cut, I'm like, oh, my God, it worked. <laughs> I feel like, do you know the movie, All That Jazz, when, yes. the, producer, when the producer is, like, looking at, at the, the comedian, the 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 movie and he's like you're 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 cutting and you're cutting and just and he looks at me and goes oh god it is better <laughs> like, I feel like him all the time with Roberto where I'm like I'm always freaking out and it'll never work and it it always does like it's weird he's a he's a crazy genius that way but he's also he's also a very kind human being and so I'm super proud also of of how much he promotes internally and how he seeks out actors and writers and directors and everyone to just get a shot and give them a voice and and i'm i'm very proud when he has me kind of shepherd them like i'm always producing the first time directors episodes because like i can be a, a sounding board or a shoulder but also not get in their way yeah so I, I'm I'm proud of that. I'm I'm really proud of those things. I'm super proud of those. I'm, I'm super proud of some of the episodes that we've done in Riverdale. I'm I'm happy about the lasting impact of of Supergirl. I I think it ran for a long time and it connected with a lot of people and a lot of young girls who never saw, who always had to imagine themselves like just be happy with you know, Ripley or Leia or, or Marion, which are all great characters, yeah. but if you look at them, they're like the woman in those, although, to be fair, there are other women and aliens, but not in Raiders and Star Wars. <laughs> but I, I also love what an elegant thing Melissa said, just like, this is a job for oh, Supergirl. It was incredible. It was it's, the best thing in the world. Like, when you said that, I was like, I kind of got chills, and I was just like... Melissa, Melissa, I will say this, I mean, we, we don't we don't really know. I, I, we're not in each other's lives anymore. But I, I really cherish the time we worked together, and I think I felt very, very lucky in that moment. I, I think when I see behind the scenes of the Christopher Reeve stuff, which, which the Christopher Reeve movies work because of two, like three things: one, Christopher Reeve; two, Margot Kidder; and three, John Williams. Like, it's not really a good movie. <laughs> It's got great moments in it, but those three people created like this magic that and and Richard Donner. I mean, Richard Donner did a fantastic job. Um, but it's really like I I felt like I got to see like experience what that must have felt like because Melissa, she is Supergirl. She's amazing, amazing, and she embodied that role because she's a good human being. Ted. You are a wonderful human being, and I, I want to thank you for doing this because if nothing else, I, I always say, like, I, I'm someone who could look at, on a lot full of people and be like, that dude is a good dude. And you have always been so wonderful and nice to me. And even though, like, our paths don't cross all the time when they do, I'm so fucking glad to to know you and have met you and to continue seeing you. Um, so just a big thank you for for coming to my house on a fucking Thursday night to, to talk with me and, and open up emotionally because – that was awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you. And I don't even know if we hit any of your questions. Dude, or... we did. All right. You great. you know what? You did the thing where it's like you answered them without me having to ask. Perfect. All right. Great. Well, then uh, 
When do I get paid? Uh, my uh, we will, when you when you head out, we'll valet. <laughs> Perfect, <laughs> yes. and we'll give you a check. Thank you, Beautiful. dude. I appreciate it. Right. Awesome, great.